Well, welcome back, everyone. I hope you all had a good Halloween. And I hope you all enjoyed the Halloween episode. But tonight, we're going to get into the official first episode of season two. We're going to be talking about the Pitchfork murders. You know, the old world is passing before eyes in the flash of a broadband optic fiber network. It seems society barely remembers what happened two years ago, much less 20 years ago. Or 200. For thousands of years, the twin pressure of history and tradition laid heavy on the world. As generation after generation were raised in the same beliefs and surroundings, that is all fading away. But some traditions die harder than others. Many such traditions involve the occult, both the practice of it and the shunning of it. That's what we will be diving into tonight. Secrets of the Strange looking into their recent past and finding traces of a grim and ancient practice, the ritual scouring, and a murder of a witch. Stay tuned. There's a lot to unpack in this one. You are about to enter a world where truth can be scarier than fiction, where the old world and the new world meet unveiling the depravity of humanity. It hides in the shadows. I'm your host and curator of all things strange, Anthony Rossetti, and this is not another horror podcast. For this story, our eyes turn to rural England. Yeah, we're finally out of the States. <laughs> in the small village of Long Compton. Long Compton sits in the shadow of megalithic monuments called the Rollright Stones, which have brooded there since anyone can remember. Like Stonehenge, which I'm sure you're already familiar with, the exact origin of the Rollright Stones remains a mystery. But there is no doubt that they predate Christianity by many, many generations. The stones have been the site of occult practices and occurrences for as long as there has been a record. To this day, they have an ominous reputation. The area has been the scene of witchcraft and witch burnings for centuries. Self-proclaimed 
Witch Finder General, aka Witch Hunter Matthew Hopkins, was the most notorious witch hunter in the 1640s. Colchester Castle served as the place where he jailed and interrogated the women and men believed to be witches. The interrogation took place in the dark cells of the castle where many are believed to have died as a result of their incarceration before even being brought to court in the year 1662, the height of the witch hunt frenzy in England. Another local woman, Isabel Gowdy, was burned as a witch. But as time moved on, some beliefs didn't change. The 20th century brought perhaps the most baffling and difficult case of occult murder yet, and that is the murder of Charles Walton. A man who was considered a witch, was he killed by a witch hunter? In the 1940s, there lived a peculiar old man named Charles Walton. Charles Walton was born May 12, 1870, to Charles and Emma Walton. An agricultural worker, he had lived in Lower Quentin all of his life. He was a widower who shared a small cottage with his 33-year-old niece, Edith Isabel Walton, whom he had adopted 30 years ago when her mother died. He had earned a reputation as a trainer of horses in his youth, but he wasn't just good with horses. No, he was good with all animals. Wild birds would apparently flock towards him, and he would feed them seeds directly out of his hand. And it is also said that he could even tame a controlled wild or rabbit dog simply with the use of his voice. Walton was very much versed in the traditional ways of rural lore. He was described as a loner. He did not socialize with his neighbors, but it has been noted that he was not disliked or anything. He just minded his business and people seemed to appreciate that. Walton walked with a stick because of his bad joints and the pain was getting worse. To the point where he could barely stand up straight. For the previous nine months, he had been working for a local farmer, Alfred Potter, whose farm was known as The Fears. On Valentine's Day 1945, Walton left home with a pitchfork and a slash hook, a doubled-edged pruning implement with a sharpened straight edge on one side and concave cutting edge on the other. Edith stated that Walton had left his wallet at home, which was very unusual for him. He was witnessed to have passed through the churchyard between 9 a.m. and 9.30. On this particular day, he was slashing hedges in a field known as Hill Ground on the slopes of the infamous Meon Hill. That day, Edith Walton was working as a printer's assembler at the Royal Society of Arts, which had relocated to Lower Quentin for the duration of the war. Walton was expected to be home by 4 p.m. Edith returned home around 6 and found that Walton was not there. She knew how introverted he was and knew he would have came home. It was just not in his character to not come home. 
something had happened to Charles. Edith went to see her neighbor, another agricultural worker by the name of Harry Beasley, who lived at 16 Lower Quinton. Together, they made their way to the fears to alert Alfred Potter. Potter claimed to have last seen Charles earlier in the day, slashing hedges and hill ground. The three of them set out in the direction of the spot where Charles had last been seen. But the search was a quick one, because... They found his dead body within the first eight minutes. The body was found near Meon Hill. Walton's body lied near a hedgerow in the field in which he had been working that day. His billhook, a tool used for hedge trimming, was buried in his neck. A pitchfork was also driven through his throat. The prong tool had been plunged so violently that its prongs were bent back from striking the frozen ground beneath and pinned him down. Walton's walking stick was found nearby with blood and hair on it, indicating a vicious beating, and his chest had a cross carved into it. Edith, of course, was overcome with Sadness, and she began to cry hysterically. Beasley tried to console her and to make sure that she did not venture too close to the scene. At that moment, Harry Peachy was walking along the other side of the hedge. Potter called to him, directed his attention to the body, and told Peachy to go and alert the police. Potter stood guard over the murder scene until the police arrived while Beasley took Edith back down the hill. The first policeman on the scene was P.C. Michael James Lumsney, who arrived at 7.05 p.m. Members of Stratford-upon-Avon CID arrived later in the evening, while Professor James M. Webster of the West Midlands Forensics Laboratory arrived at 11.30 p.m. The body was finally removed at 1.30 a.m. There's a lot of times here if you're keeping track. Now, the body was found at Meon Hill, and Meon Hill is notorious for its own witchcraft stories. So this, of course, raised suspicion. Once they finally got his body, next was the autopsy. Professor Webster, post-mortem on Walton, found that Walton's trachea had been cut and that he had bruising to his chest and several broken ribs. Walton also had defensive wounds, a cut on his hand, and bruises on the back of his right hand and forearm. Webster concluded that Walton's wounds had been caused by two weapons, a stabbing weapon and a cutting weapon, presumably the pitchfork and, of course, the slash hook. Walton had also been hit over the head with his own walking stick which was found three and a half yards from his body, with blood and hair adhering to it. It was determined that Walton died between 1 and 2 p.m. Walton's shirt had been opened, his trousers had been unfastened at the top, and his fly was unbuttoned. Webster's report makes no specific mention of the cross supposedly carved on 
Walton's chest mentioned in some other witness accounts. The police did have their suspects, though. When they started to dig, they learned that Walton's employer, Albert Potter, was dishonest and bad-tempered. He was often late paying employees as he was allegedly embezzling funds and juggling the remaining cash between creditors to keep them from finding out. Furthermore, when questioned, Potter's story was always inconsistent, changing several times during interviews. The famous detective, Fabian of the Yard, considered Potter the prime suspect, but never gathered enough evidence to charge him. When attempting to question locals about the crime, however, Fabian encountered a wall of silence. When villagers would speak, they said as little as possible. Some wouldn't even talk at all. Were they wary of outsiders, or did they have something else to hide? Fabian did look into Walton's past, but found nothing that shed any light on his murder. But one curious fact was the disappearance of Walton's wealth. You see, here's where things get a little hazy. In 1927, he became a widower, and he had a net worth of 297 euros. Quite a considerable sum of money at that time. If you want to pause this and look it up, you'll see it was a lot. All this cash was put into a building society account, but only a little over two pounds was credited to the account after his death. No one knew where the rest of his money went. Things got even stranger as the investigation continued. You see, Fabian found another similar case while digging. Seventy years before this, 80-year-old Ann Tennant, a resident of Long Compton, some 15 miles from Laura Quentin, had been killed with a pitchfork by one James Haywood on the grounds that she, too, was a witch who possessed paranormal abilities. On September 15, 1875, at about 8 o'clock in the evening, Ann Tennant left her house in Long Compton to buy a loaf of bread. On her way back, she met some farm workers returning home from harvesting in the fields. One of the group was a local man, James Haywood, who had known Anne for many years. Haywood was simple-minded, as they would say, and was seen as something like a village idiot. It is known that he had also been drinking cider. Without warning, he attacked Anne Tennant with a pitchfork, pinned her to the ground, stabbing her in the legs, and in the head. A local farmer named Taylor heard the commotion and ran to Ann's aid. He restrained Haywood until a constable arrived. Ann was taken to her daughter's house but died of her injuries at around 11.15 that night. Haywood claimed that Ann was a witch and that there were other witches in the village whom he intended to deal with in the same way. Although committed to trial for murder, he was found not guilty <laughs> on the grounds of insanity and spent the rest of his life in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. He is recorded as dying there at checks notes, <laughs> the age of 59 in the first half of 1890. 
There's a lot of supernatural coincidences. Now, maybe you believe in coincidences, maybe you don't. But another weird thing I noticed is that by the old Julian calendar, February 14th actually translated to the date of Embolic, the pagan festival that marks the beginning of spring. It is argued that it was known locally to be the best day for a good old blood sacrifice. Helping the earth after the recent winter and to make sure of a plentiful harvest. Although this makes for good storytelling, there's nothing to suggest a ritual element to Walton's death. It seems to be a lot of speculation, but I wasn't there, so... <laughs> But Fabian also learned that the year prior to 1945 had been a particularly poor one in Lower Quentin. As far as agriculture went, the village livelihood depended on a good harvest and 1944 had been one of the poorest years on records. The people there may have looked to Charles Walton with suspicion, blaming the so-called witch for their misfortunes. Now, as I continued more research into this case, I found that a university professor, Margaret Murray, also believes this was a ritual killing. Margaret Murray, a professor from University College in London who had written extensively on the history of European witchcraft, took a great interest in the Walton case. She claimed that the murder was likely a ritual act performed for the purpose of replenishing the soil with the old man's blood. The belief is, according to Murray, that if life is taken out of the ground, it must be replaced by blood sacrifice. She goes on to say that not much is known about the old ways, as they were practiced during the Iron Age Britain. What little information there is has been pieced together from the accounts of Roman historians and various archaeological discoveries, both of which point to the importance of ritual sacrifices within the ancient Celtic religious system. Sacrifice was the means by which the balance of nature was maintained, with offerings made to the governing divine forces in exchange for their blessings. Most consisted of animal, food, wine, incense, weapons, or jewelry. However, the ritual murder of humans was not unusual. It was an extraordinary form of sacrifice made during particularly critical times, and nine out of ten times, apparently, the person seemed to be willing to go. Most likely, they felt that it would be the safest bet to avert a famine or epidemic, provide victory before a battle, promote fertility, or guarantee a successful harvest. Ah, oh, I'm so glad I live in 2021. <laughs> Victims would be selected from across a wide spectrum of candidates that includes criminals, kings, menopausal women, adolescents, rival clan chiefs, social outcasts, and witches. Witches in particular are thought to have been a sacrificial favorite, as it was widely believed that they possessed the power to disrupt or manipulate the natural order. A witch provided the ideal scapegoat, offering to appease the gods and restore essential balance. Now, some sources also cite a familial connection between Ann Turner and Charles Walton. You see, Charles Walton's great-grandparents were Thomas Walton and Ann Smith. Ann Smith was Ann Tennant's maiden name, and she was born in 1794. 
It is feasible that if it was she who married Thomas Walton on January 2nd, 1812, well, she would have been 17 or 18. She could have given birth to William Walton, the victim's grandfather, in 1814, and assuming that her husband also died, could have married John Tennant in April 1819 in Long If this possibility were to be proven true, well, Anne Tennant was Charles Walton's great-grandmother. Now, Fabian of the Yard, the famed detective, basically a Dick Tracy of his time, he was simply frustrated. So he decided to return to London. Before he did, though, he took one final trip to the scene of the crime and saw a big black dog sprint past him. Fabian mentioned this to a boy who appeared not long afterward. The boy turned and scurried down the hill in horror. Before the day ended, a similar-sized dog was found hanging from his neck from a tree adjacent to the murder scene. Things continued to get even weirder. In November 1952, a group from the Birmingham Psychic Society attempted to make contact with Walton in a seance planned to take place at the site of the murder. Not surprisingly, no light as to the identity of the murder was shed. The event did not pass without incident, however, a local counselor who supported the undertaking took some soil from the scene. Why would you do that? <laughs> He, after that, he reported a train of bad luck until he finally got rid of the tainted specimen. In August 1960, the outhouses behind the cottage rented by Walton were being demolished. One workman spotted something glinting and discovered an old tin pocket watch. It was later identified as Walton's. Inside the watch, a piece of colored glass was found. Walton never let this watch out of his possession. Villagers reckoned that the glass found was witch glass. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's used to absorb or deflect evil thoughts aimed at its owner. Police revealed that during the early days of the investigation, they searched the same place and found nothing there. Who murdered Charles Walton? And why? And to this day, Fabian of the Yard who, while never solving the case, claimed in his memoirs that Charles had been hacked to death in a pagan ritual because he was believed to be a warlock. Fabian went on to say he was a well, he was certain that it was a witch cult and that they were behind the murders. I'm not really sure what to think about that, to be honest with you. A witch cult sounds kind of cool. <laughs> Fabian often walked around the hill and claimed that he encounters a spectral black dog one evening which vanished. Now, I guess before I let you go tonight, I should also tell you some cool stories or... Wow. That, that, no. Cool stories? What? No. <laughs> I want to tell you guys some stories about me on Hill. One tale about a much more recent event that went on in the shadow of Mian Hill. In a field directly behind Lord Quentin, three demonic figures would crawl from their home in a grass-covered burial chamber, brightly colored and babbling bizarre, nonsensical words. 
They openly worship the sun as a deity in the form of a child, but fall down in a state of mania as the child gods shower strange rays down on them before stumbling back into their barrow. Yes, if that sounded familiar, the TV show Teletubbies was actually filmed right there on Meon Hill. <laughs> when the BBC departed, they even left the Tubby house. And another mysterious happening there would also be the Mickleton Hooter. You see, this began with an unexplained booming sound coming from Meon Hill, becoming a long, low horn noise as the weeks went on. The black dog returned, this time sometimes seen with a ghostly, headless woman behind it, before the eventual arrival of a spectral coach and horses that sped through the darkness before disappearing into the hill itself. An old legend used the claim that a getaway to hell itself was somewhere on Meon Hill, so it's not difficult to imagine why these stories have been passed around. But even after my research in this, I still can't find the root of it. You know, there's little, if any, proof that witchcraft played a part in the murder of Charles Walton. What it does bring home, well, to me, is the need we all have for answers. The deep-seated desire to explain and make sense of events that seem to happen with no rhyme or reason. The fact that you could simply be murdered just for the fact of, well, being murdered doesn't sit well with some people. We all have to know why, why it happened. But sometimes there's no answer. But there is one thing that seems to stand the test of time. People are always ready to blame the witch for misfortune, whatever the century. See you next week.